It was April 12, 1982, a pretty unseasonably cold and snowy Easter Monday in Midtown Manhattan when police got the call. There were three dead bodies at a rooftop parking garage on Pier 92, and a woman had been kidnapped. Now, this was well before what I call the Sex in the City era in New York City. We're going back to the taxi driver period. Midtown Manhattan was full of pimps and sex workers and crime at that time. In fact, according to Richard Hammer's book, The CBS Murders, a true account of greed and violence, there were more than 10 murders a week in Manhattan during this time period. The drama started to unfold shortly before 6 p.m., when three guys who worked for CBS Studios on 57th Street, Leo Kuranuki, Robert Schultz, and Edward Benford, all left work together. These guys were all engineering techs for the network. They said their goodbyes, and they headed west toward the rooftop parking garage at Pier 92 on 54th Street. It was just an ordinary work day for these guys. They got to their garage and started walking toward their cars. And that's when they saw the man in the ski mask dragging the limp body of a young woman toward a white Volkswagen van. Now, at the same time, another colleague of theirs, a guy named Angelo Sicca, was walking behind them. He would later tell police that he yelled at the guys to wait for him. But because he was trailing pretty far behind, they didn't hear him. So Angelo just kept walking on his own. He got to the garage just in time to see a flash There was a woman on the ground, and he watched in horror as his colleagues approached the stranger to try to intervene. Then he saw the man pull out a rifle, say, you didn't see nothing, and then chase them down and shoot them execution style in the head, one by one. When the killer pulled out the gun and fired, Angelo heard a soft pop. He realized with horror that the man in the ski mask had a silencer. He was in shock at this point and completely terrified. He thought that he might have just stumbled on a professional hit, and he couldn't tell if the killer had seen him. Angelo jumped into his car, huddled down, and tried not to look up as he drove really fast out of the garage. The whole time, he was terrified that the killer might catch up to him and shoot him too. He looked in his rearview mirror and saw the silver van pull out into the street. But to his relief, it didn't chase him. Angelo found a phone and called the police. Then he called CBS News and told them to send a camera crew because he knew that this was about to turn into a big story. Officers arrived on the scene. They saw the three dead bodies. They saw the victim's blue BMW 320i with a woman's shoes next to it. Apparently, she had lost them in the struggle. The car had New Jersey license plates and the registration in the glove compartment belonged to Margaret Barbara. Her address was 631 Cumberland Road in Teaneck, New Jersey. The next morning, at around 5 a.m., a bartender in Tribeca had just gotten off work and was walking his German shepherd down a small street called Franklin Alley. He saw part of a leg and then realized that he was looking at a dead body. Police put the shoes from the crime scene onto this victim's feet and realized that like a grisly version of Cinderella, they had a perfect match. This was the fourth body that they had found in two days. And the search for the killer would lead police to a multi-million dollar diamond heist, millions of dollars in stolen money, and another mysterious disappearance. It would be one of the biggest murder mysteries that New York had seen in a decade. 
I'm Katherine Townsend. This is Red Collar. Police were trying to figure out what was going on at the crime scene unfolding at Pier 92. They had three dead bodies, and they had no idea what connection, if any, any of them had had to the kidnapped woman, who they had now identified as Margaret Barbara. Margaret was 38 years old, very attractive, and a bookkeeper at the camera service center nearby. She'd only worked there for about a week, and her colleagues confirmed that it had been a normal workday She left just before 6 p.m., like she always did, to walk to her car. Police talked to Angelo, the sole living witness. Even though he said he'd been too terrified to look directly at the killer, he was able to give them some detail. The killer had been wearing a ski mask and was a tall man with a slim build, somewhere between 30 and 40 years old. Margaret's colleagues described her as somewhat of a mystery woman. They said she didn't really talk about herself. She lived alone. And she had mentioned in passing that she had had an issue with her former boss. In fact, she'd said she may be involved in a big court case. As it turned out, police had already heard Margaret's name. She was well known to law enforcement because she was part of a big federal case involving another mysterious disappearance that happened three months earlier. On January 5th, Margaret's close friend, a 46-year-old housewife and mother of four named Jenny Su Chen, had disappeared without a trace after leaving Margaret's apartment in Queens. After Jenny vanished, Margaret did everything she could to find her. She canvassed the neighborhood. She went door to door. She even helped find witnesses, the two teens who described a man who they say came up behind Jenny and forced her into her car. Margaret even reportedly hired a psychic. By the way, the teen's description of the man who abducted Jenny, tall, thin, and wearing a dark ski mask, was pretty much the same as the description of the multiple murderer at the garage. The two teens said that they had seen this man walk up behind Jenny and force her into her own station wagon. And then they say he got into the driver's seat and drove away. Margaret was distraught after Jenny's disappearance. She had put up flyers and demanded that police investigate her friend's disappearance. Yet, investigators said that in other ways, officially, she was weirdly not super cooperative. For example, they said that she refused to take lie detector tests or go through hypnosis. The bottom line was they believed that Margaret was hiding something, and they were right. Margaret Barbara grew up in Queens. As a child, she was known for being smart and good at math. After high school, she became a bookkeeper. She went to NYU when she was 27, where she got a BA in business administration. She enrolled in grad school, but dropped out due to bad grades. After starting pretty ambitiously down her career path, it seems she kind of failed to thrive. At the time of the murder, she lived in a fourth-floor walk-up in Queens, where she'd lived for the past 17 years. The custodian of the building told the New York Times, she was a mystery. She kept to herself, didn't have many visitors, and didn't speak much to people. After leaving school from around 1974 to 1977, Margaret worked as an accountant for a small company. According to the New York Times, who tracked down one of her former bosses, this former boss said she was constantly having bad luck. 
According to that boss, Margaret always seemed to have a sob story. She would say her fiancé had been killed in a car accident, that her mother was dying of cancer. Sometimes she even said that she had a serious illness. Eventually, her boss got tired of this drama and she was fired. After that, she took jobs at companies where, according to authorities, she got a reputation as someone who didn't mind bending the rules and cooking the books a little bit. If you needed the numbers to look a certain way, she was known to come through for you. Police also talked to Jenny's husband, Edward Chin. They noticed that he seemed bothered by Margaret and Jenny's relationship. Reading between the lines, it seemed like he was implying that Margaret had an obsession with Jenny. Police started digging deeper into their friendship. They found out that the women had known each other for about three years. And over that time, they got very close. They spent more and more time together. Police started to suspect that there was more to their relationship than friendship. When they went into Margaret's cluttered apartment to look around, they found Polaroids of Margaret and Jenny, some of them in very intimate situations. It was obvious that the two women had been lovers. Now, for someone like Edward Chen, who was a banker, very well-known in the Chinese community, this would be a huge scandal even today. In the early 80s, it would have been much worse, and coming out would have been a terrifying thought for Jenny. Police did notice that Edward didn't seem too worried about Jenny's disappearance. On January 11th, Jenny's red Pontiac station wagon was found on 36th Street in Manhattan. The car had been abandoned, and inside, detectives found evidence of a struggle. There were blood stains on the door handles and the window handles and on the carpet. There was a 22 caliber shell casing on the floor of the car. All of the victims in the parking garage and Margaret Barbara had been shot in the back of the head at point-blank range with a 22 caliber rifle. At this point, police were suspicious of Edward, but they had no evidence that he had been involved in Jenny or Margaret's disappearances. So they started taking a closer look at Margaret's story, especially the part where she told people at work about the problem with her ex-boss and testifying in a federal investigation. Police discovered that Margaret was involved in some very shady business with her boss, Erwin Margolis. Erwin Margolis was the owner of a jewelry company called Candor Diamonds. Those who knew Erwin described him as pretty uncouth. He was balding, tall, and very heavyset. He was born and raised in Brooklyn and was a car salesman before he started selling jewelry. He founded the Candor Diamond Corporation in 1974. But he kicked business up a notch in the 1980s when he teamed up with a friend of his, a lawyer named Henry Ostreicher. What these guys were trying to do basically was come up with a get-rich-quick scheme. They came up with an idea using a system called factoring. Now, factoring is a type of financing, and what it's supposed to do when it's done legally is to improve the cash flow of small companies. The idea is that instead of having to send out invoices and wait for payments to come through, factoring companies pay the invoice immediately so the businesses can use the cash for their day-to-day transactions. Jewelry factoring was seen as lower risk than, for example, factoring for something like a fashion line, because even if the company failed or someone didn't pay, theoretically, you still had access to the raw materials. The gold and diamonds and precious stones still had value. Irwin cut a deal with a factoring company, J.P. McGuire. This company had a lot of capital. First, Canner would send J.P. McGuire an invoice. 
J.P. McGuire would immediately transfer 85% of the sales price to Canner. Once the client paid the invoice directly to J.P. McGuire, the remaining 15%, minus the factoring fee, would be sent to Canner. That's the way it's supposed to work anyway, and for a while, it did. For a few months, Irwin kept the operation pretty legit, so it seemed like everything was on the up and up. But like so many con artists, he started small so that he could set the guys at J.P. McGuire up for a big score. It's the same tactic that romance scammers use when they ask to borrow 20 bucks first. Then they pay you back. And then eventually they hit you up for $10,000 through Western Union. Finally, Irwin took things up a notch. He sent a fake invoice to J.P. McGuire for just over $7,000. Once J.P. McGuire paid that invoice, Irwin knew that he could basically get away with stealing. And from that point on, almost all of the invoices he sent were fake. We hear the phrase cooking the books a lot in white collar and red collar crime. And it's an interesting expression because kind of like being a great chef, there is an art to it. Using accounting tricks to make a business seem more profitable than it is takes skill. This is one of those things that's glossed over in TV shows and movies, but it definitely involves a lot of practice. That's where Margaret Barbara came in. In the summer of 1980, she went to work for Candor Diamond as a bookkeeper. Records in federal bankruptcy court in Manhattan show that prior to the year that Margaret joined the company, Candor was small. They sold most of their items for around $100 each. They had fewer than 10 employees. Their top gross annual sales were around $300,000. But most of the time, they had under $50,000 in sales. According to media reports, it seems as though Irwin was pretty open with Margaret about the fraud. He told her about the fake invoices, and she participated in the scam. In fact, he would later say that she came up with new ways to help him scam people. What they were running was basically a Ponzi scheme. The invoices were fake and they were for customers that didn't exist. Once J.P. McGuire paid them the money, they would take that money and use it as collateral to get larger loans. So suddenly these low-level, small-time jewelers went from struggling with under $50,000 in sales to having tons of cash, millions of dollars in sales, all in under two years. Irwin and his wife Madeline, who was in the business with him, started splashing out. They bought their home in the upscale suburb of Scarsdale. They spent $100,000 to redecorate and expand. They bought luxury cars, including three Porsches and a Pontiac Firebird Trans Am. They bought property in Florida and a 30-foot sailing yacht. They put $200,000 into a numbered account in Israel. By 1981, the fast growth had caught the attention of someone else, the auditors. And when they came in for the audit, Irwin did an incredible job of bluffing. He told the auditors that they couldn't do the audit immediately. He said there was a jewelry show going on. There was no one to help them handle the merchandise. But he said if they came back the next week, he promised total cooperation. Of course, shortly after this, Irwin and Madeline left their kids with relatives and fled the country. They were headed for Israel. By now, the auditors were figuring out that almost all of Canner's sales were basically works of fiction. Irwin and Madeline had stolen $5.7 million in all. So the feds moved in to seize the assets, but they found less than $10,000 in diamonds on the premises. Irwin and Madeline had grabbed a suitcase and they had cleaned that office out. 
they took all the money and all the diamonds. This was actually a huge heist, but instead of doing a smash and grab, they did it right out in the open. They told the auditors to leave and come back and just left town. I can't really wrap my head around this. Can you imagine a drug dealer telling police, no, I'm sorry, you can't do the raid now. It's kind of an inconvenient time, but can you come back next week? This cooperation doesn't happen with any crime except white-collar crime. While Erwin and Madeline were in the Middle East, they made a trip to Switzerland and opened a bank account there. Madeline took diamonds worth over $2 million that she had put in a suitcase and dumped them into a safe deposit box in the name of her shell corporation. Margaret's salary kept increasing during this time period, going from $32,000 to $64,000 per year. And Irwin said that he kept agreeing to whatever Margaret wanted. He even said that he would hire her friend Jenny to help with the bookkeeping. He also sent the women off on a trip to Europe, and they always traveled first class. Irwin had a dirty secret. He would later admit to the investigators that from the beginning, he hired Margaret and did whatever he had to do to keep her happy and coming into work because he would need her to take the fall if he ever got busted by the feds. So right from the beginning, he was setting her up. But Barbara had a secret of her own. She kept two sets of books, the cooked books that she showed Irwin and the real books. And she was keeping copies of those books inside her cluttered apartment. Eventually, Irwin called the FBI and said that he wanted to cooperate. He said the entire operation had been Margaret's idea. He said she must have been the one to commit fraud. She was in charge of the bookkeeping and the financial side. He said he didn't know anything about it. All through this time, Margaret stayed quiet, at least for a while. But after Jenny disappeared, Margaret started to worry that she may be next. She got a lawyer, and she asked that lawyer what would happen to her if she cooperated. Could she get protection? She said she was afraid that she might be the next dead body found. According to the journalist Michael Posner's reporting for McLean's, Margaret clearly believed that she was a marked woman. She called her lawyer late at night while he was on a trip to Florida and, according to the article, was freaking out and hysterical because she thought someone was following her. Her lawyer advised her to move in with friends. She did for a little while, but she couldn't stay forever. She asked for federal protection several times. She changed the locks on her doors, put bars on her windows, and started taking karate lessons. The passage from the book The CBS Murders really highlights the fact that the authorities at that time didn't think that Margaret was in serious danger. They just could not conceive of the fact that white-collar criminals, and this is something that we talk about a lot with red-collar crime, were capable of that kind of violence. Meanwhile, unbeknownst to Margaret, while the feds were debating if there could be a potential threat to her life, her killer was already stalking her. By March, Margaret was ready to start talking. On March 18th, she met with investigators. She told the feds about the factoring scams and the fake invoices and her boss. But she kept one secret. She didn't tell them about the duplicate, real set of books in her apartment. Margaret's assassin followed her for weeks. He learned her routine down to the minute. She had been holed up in her house for a long time, but eventually she had to get a job. 
and that daily routine left her vulnerable. Her killer tried to follow her more than once inside the parking garage, but one of the attendants told him that only monthly customers were allowed in that area. So he found a solution. He decided to go ahead and rent a monthly parking space in that same garage on Pier 92. The FBI came in to help with the investigation. They started doing their victimology investigation. They learned everything about Margaret and her routines. They needed to ID the killer. They tried everything they could think of. They even asked for photographs that had been taken by passengers on a ship called the SS Rotterdam. It had been docked during the afternoon at Pier 90, but they had no luck. Some people in law enforcement believe that the hitman may have already been killed. They pointed out that this looked like it was supposed to be a professional job. And the hitman appeared to have screwed it up really badly. One law enforcement source told McLean's magazine, the hitman will probably be dead by the end of the week. Then one of the investigators had an idea. He decided to start checking applications for those monthly parking spaces. At first, they were worried this might have been a wild goose chase. But they found that between April 1st and the day of the murder, there had only been five applications made in total, and only one was for a van. That van was registered to a guy named Donald Nash. Now they had a name, but they didn't have enough information to arrest him. As far as they knew, this guy had no obvious connection to Margaret. But at some point, Donald Nash had reported his van as stolen. So police were able to use that to locate and search it. Donald Nash was arrested in Kentucky. To everyone's surprise, Donald Nash seemed like a pretty regular guy. He lived in Teaneck, New Jersey, with his common-law wife and daughter. He was a building contractor, and he was known for helping people around the neighborhood fix things, usually for no cost. But he also had connections to organized crime, and he did have a rap sheet. His criminal record included things like burglary and forgery and other scams. But until this, he had nothing violent on his record. In the pre-rideshare time, before there was Uber and Lyft, New York City cabs were incredibly valuable. Buying a taxi medallion could cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, and most drivers didn't have that kind of money. So often they would rent their cabs. And Donald figured out a pretty lucrative scam, cab cloning. Basically, it involved painting a car to look like a cab, then stealing a taxi registration number and creating a fake taxi cab. He would then rent this out to taxi drivers for around $300 per day. Donald had pleaded guilty to the scam, and he was given a 20-day sentence at the Manhattan Correctional Center. The MCC, by the way, is the notorious prison where Jeffrey Epstein was incarcerated and found dead. Donald was supposed to show up and surrender to police to start the sentence on Tuesday, April 13, 1982, the day after the murders. Then they found the connection between Donald and Irwin, the lawyer, Howard Ostriker. Howard, by the way, would eventually agree to cooperate with authorities and get immunity from prosecution at both federal and state level. Howard would later testify that he had suggested Donald for the job. He said that Irwin wasn't sure and made comments along the lines of him not being sure that Donald would be the right man for the job. But he agreed to meet him. So on December 1st, 1981, according to Howard's testimony, Donald Nash met Irwin in the back room of a deli in Midtown. Then, like something in a scene straight out of Goodfellas, according to Howard, 
Erwin and Donald communicated through kind of a code language. He said, they did not converse, but used sign language in saying how much would be charged for the elimination of the witnesses. Erwin agreed to pay Donald $8,000 for each murder. He also gave Donald information on Margaret and Julie, their address, their license plate numbers, their daily routines, etc. Erwin was very clear about something else. He wanted to make sure there were no witnesses to these murders. He wanted people to think that Margaret and Julie had left town together and taken all the money with them and flown off to a happy ending. Given their situation and the secrecy they were dealing with, this plan could possibly have worked. Donald said fine and agreed to do the job. His plan was to eliminate Margaret first. The problem was, at this point, Margaret was already scared. She knew that someone could be after her. She also knew that Erwin was a dangerous guy, and she was being extra careful. She spent most of her time at home alone. Occasionally, Jenny would come over, but when the two women were in public, Donald felt that there were too many people around to make a move. And this case has another surreal twist. At one point, Donald said that he did see an opportunity to get rid of them both at once. He was following them when Margaret's car broke down. He ended up getting out of his car, walking up to their car, and actually fixing the fan belt. He said that he thought about killing them right then, but he decided, once again, there were just too many people around. By January, Erwin was getting impatient, and he let Donald know that the pressure was on and that he needed to take care of business. Since Donald felt that he couldn't get to Margaret, he went for his second target, Jenny. On January 5th, he came up behind Jenny when she was getting into her car, forced her inside, and shot her in the head. After shooting Jenny in the head, Donald dumped her body. And investigators say he took a Polaroid picture of her covered in blood as proof that he had done it. Howard would later tell the authorities that Erwin was furious about the fact that Jenny had been eliminated first before Margaret. He said he felt like if Margaret had been killed first, he may not have had to have Jenny killed. I'm not sure if he was more concerned about murdering two people or the additional money that the second victim would cost him. That's something we'll probably never know. After killing Jenny, Donald started stalking Margaret. He was really focused on having no witnesses. He learned her routine intimately. He planned to park his white van in the parking space to the left of Margaret's BMW. That way, after he shot her, he could put her into the van and no one would see. But something happened. For the first time since he had been tailing her at that location, the parking spot immediately to her left was occupied. Now he was annoyed because he had to park on the other side, which meant that he had to drag Margaret's body. This was a difference of only a few seconds, but in this case, that few seconds was critical. The night after the four killings, according to the New York Times, Howard testified in court that Irwin had called him at home. He said that Irwin asked him, did you hear the news? And when he said yes, Irwin said, oy vey. Police arrested Donald in Frankfort, Kentucky on April 19, 1982. He went on trial for murder in 1983. Police also questioned Donald's nephew, 29-year-old Thomas Dane, and he helped them fill in some of the blanks in the story. 
They got him to admit at trial that he had made calls to buy the silencer for the 22 caliber rifle for his uncle. But he said that he had never actually seen the gun silencer. He said he had no idea what it was. He was just doing a favor for his uncle by picking up packages for him. When police pulled out phone records that showed a call from his house phone to Margaret Barber's apartment, he had an answer for that too. He said his uncle Donald had often used that phone. On the day of the murders, he said that his uncle called him and asked for his help. He followed his uncle to Newark Airport, drove him back home, and helped him spray paint the silver van black in order to disguise it. Donald Nash was convicted of four counts of murder in the second degree for the killings and one count of conspiracy to commit murder of Jenny Su Chin. He was sentenced to 25 years on each of the four murder charges to run concurrently and eight and a half years on the conspiracy charge. The bottom line is he would have to serve 100 years in prison before he would be eligible for parole. Investigators were still not satisfied because they knew that Irwin had been the one who set this whole thing up. After all, he was the one with the motive. Donald didn't even know these women. Were it not for Irwin, both Jenny and Margaret would have been alive. They got some help from Margaret's family, who found the secret second set of books in her apartment. They turned them over to authorities. In 1982, Irwin and his wife Madeline went to trial. They were charged with fraud and tax evasion. Irwin agreed to plead guilty to 51 of the 62 charges. He got 28 years in prison. Madeline got three years in federal prison. She would be eligible for parole in just 12 months. She also got a fine of $35,000. Throughout the bankruptcy proceedings, Madeline maintained that she had no knowledge of what was going on at that business. Prosecutors, of course, say that she absolutely did, that she helped evade justice, she set up the shell corporations in her bank account, and that she moved money around to Israel and Switzerland. After she was released on parole, she retired to Florida. While Irwin was serving his fraud sentence, he got word that a lawyer for J.P. McGuire, David Bledgewas, was helping federal authorities and cooperating with them. So he asked a cellmate, a guy he was playing chess with, to kill David for $15,000. According to the CBS Murders book, Irwin was cold-blooded about arranging that hit. He gave the hitman David's picture, and at one point, the purported hitman asked him what would happen if they showed up and David had a wife and kids there. Irwin said something like, if they have to be taken care of, take care of them. He said that he wanted David killed because David's persistence in the candor bankruptcy proceedings had implicated his wife, Madeline. Unbeknownst to Irwin, the guy he solicited in prison was actually an informant. So this guy turned right around and told authorities what Irwin was up to. Irwin was indicted for the murders of Margaret Barbara and Jenny Su Chin and one count of conspiracy to commit murder. He was convicted and sentenced to 50 years to life in prison. The Justice Department also looked into some payments, including one for $15,000 that was said to have been made by Irwin to a lawyer who was defending Donald Nash at the time. According to the New York Times, they had questions about the fact that Irwin was funding Donald's legal defense and taking care of his family. But the lawyer said that he couldn't be expected to know the source of his client's funding. And after that, the matter just seemed to be dropped. Three years into his sentence, Irwin died in prison. Margaret Barber's family later filed a lawsuit 
against former assistant U.S. attorney Stephen Schlesinger. In December 1981, according to AP News, Schlesinger allegedly told Irwin's lawyer about Margaret talking to the government. The lawsuit stated that this meant that Schlesinger not protecting Margaret was negligent and reckless. But an appeals court threw that lawsuit out in December of 1987. The court said there was no proof that the government had been obligated to protect Margaret. This case is definitely one of those that's stranger than fiction. It's been the subject of several documentaries and an episode of Law & Order in 1992 that seemed to be inspired by the circumstances of the case. The episode was called Severance. Donald started serving his time at the Auburn Correctional Facility, and in 1994, he made headlines again, this time again for murder. He slashed the throat of a man named Roy Tucker, who was working kitchen duty with Donald one morning. According to media reports, Donald attacked Roy with a foot-long plank of wood that had several razor blades stuck in it while they made breakfast. Madeline Margolis passed away in Palm Beach, Florida in 2009. Donald Nash died in prison in 2016. He was 80 years old. And after all this time, neither Jenny Su Chin's body nor the $5.7 million in missing money and diamonds have ever been found. Red Collar is an AudioChuck original podcast. Research and writing by me, Katherine Townsend, with production assistance from Alyssa Gostola and Resonate Recordings. You can find all of our source material for this episode on our website, redcollarpodcast.com. So what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve? (laughs) 